0: As I begin this morning, I want to share with you a story about Scott Balzon and what happened to him on December seventeenth, two 2008. He is, was 46 years old, and all of a sudden, at a weird freak accident at work, he fell and hit his head and entered into a severe brain injury, and when he awoke in the hospital, he had absolutely no memory of who he was or how he got there. Nor did he know the petite blonde woman who was sitting next to him who was, in fact, her name Joan, who had been his wife for 24 years. He didn't remember his two adult children, the child that he lost. He didn't remember that he had a career in the NFL for the Cleveland Browns as an offensive lineman, which, by the way, was maybe not a bad thing to forget uh, with the Cleveland Browns. When he awoke from his freak accident, he was diagnosed with a severe retrograde amnesia that caused him to forget everything. And what I mean by that, what made this so tragic and so terrible was, not only did he not have any memory of who he was, he had no memory of anything. He didn't understand even the concepts of husband and wife and father and having a child and even the most basic survival behaviors. He had to relearn everything, everything. And in the darkness and in the depression and in the just the fear just that overcomes you, not knowing where you're at, who you are, who you're with, those sorts of things, His wife, Joan, said that he couldn't sleep and he'd become obsessed with television, just the whole idea of television. He'd watch TV all of the time and would try to mimic characters that he saw on television, not knowing what else to do. And one day, his wife, Joan, was with one of her best friends, and her best friend asked her, what happens if he doesn't fall in love with you again? And the thought just overwhelmed her in terms of just sadness of not only the situation going on, but that tragic thought of, yeah, what happens if my husband of 24 years, in the end, doesn't love me? So she 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 cried all the time. Like she cried just in the shower. She cried in the car. She'd park in a parking lot and just cry and scream thought anyone who saw her would think that she was crazy. But can you imagine the complete devastation to know that your spouse of many years in one tragic moment had all that wiped away? Not a single memory. He doesn't know who you are. He doesn't know your name. He doesn't remember being married to you. No wedding day, no dating, nothing. You are a complete and total stranger in his mind. What do you do? Do you Do you flee? Do you stay? Do you work it out? I don't have much experience with amnesia. I've got my wife's uncle about three, was it three or four years ago, was diagnosed with uh, what's called uh, transient global amnesia. It's just a 24 hour condition where you forget all short term memory. So imagine all day you'd meet people, you couldn't remember that you met them. You couldn't figure out why you were where you were at all day long, and just for 24 hours, then it left and he was just fine, not supposed to come back again, which I think would be a great excuse to do whatever you want for 24 hours. You just go, I'm sorry, baby, I have transient global amnesia. I don't know what I was. But sometimes the stories aren't as dramatic, as complete and total memory loss, but they're just as real and just as tragic, and many of you in this room are walking through them. That your husband came back from deployment in the military and he isn't the same person. You don't, you don't recognize him now. You don't recognize this man. He's disconnected and he's withdrawn and he's depressed and he has a temper in a way that he never had before. Or maybe for you, your story is, yeah, after my wife gave birth to our second child, she entered into postpartum depression so severe that she doesn't smile anymore, she doesn't want to get out of bed anymore, and the woman that you're married to, you don't, you don't recognize her anymore as the woman that you married. Or maybe it's your daughter, that after the sexual abuse came out and everyone found out what used to be, she used to be so alive and vibrant, all of a sudden, she's quiet and she's withdrawn and she's depressed, and your daughter who you love just doesn't seem to be your daughter anymore. Or or maybe it's your mother, she's got a new boyfriend and since then she's not been the same and you you don't recognize her at all. Or maybe it's your father who had a stroke and since a stroke, he's not the same. Could be your son, maybe uh, his best friend committed suicide and it was so traumatic to him that he's just, literally, he's not the same. When you see your son, he doesn't appear to be who you once knew and we have these stories and i could go on with lots of illustrations it could be anything from you know your husband losing his job and now he's been depressed for 6 months and drinks more than he ever has before and and he just it's just bad he has or or, or maybe it's your best friend isn't the same person since her addiction used to call and talk all the time but now the only time she comes around is when she wants something sometimes when we talk about living a zombie-like life, as we've been doing now for three weeks, your first thought sometimes isn't your life or your zombie state, but rather it's someone that you love who's in a zombie-like state. That what happens when you're living with somebody in the same house who's a zombie? And, And what do you do when apathy or bitterness or anger or addiction or tragedy or life circumstance or illness or depression steals your husband or your wife? or your children, or your brother or sister, and replaces them with somebody that you don't recognize anymore. I watched the show The Walking Dead on AMC. Anyone else watch The Walking Dead? Yeah, thank you. I'm glad there's some zombie fans in here. I'm not to give away everything, in it, but you know, obviously zombies are taking over the world, and the goal of the main characters is not to be killed by zombies. But as you know in the storyline, every once in a while a main character gets picked off by a zombie. And as tragic as that is, nothing in the storyline is more tragic as when somebody that you love, whether it's a son or a daughter or a spouse, when they get killed by the zombies and then come back as a zombie. In the show, what happens is the focus of the show and the cameras immediately goes to the surviving spouse or parent of the one who's now a zombie. Because what happens is the tragedy is is even though they still kind of look the same and they're zombified obviously, but they're now a zombie, and it's this horrific experience of knowing that this person that you once loved seems like they're now coming after you to kill you, and there's only one way to get rid of a zombie. You know what it is? Yeah, you can't, you can't talk a zombie down. There's no reasoning with zombies, right? Like, you can't just shoot their leg because it doesn't, you can't even cut off their arm because it's just a zombie arm. I mean, right? The only way to get rid of a zombie is you've got you've to get rid of their brains. You've got to shoot them in the head or get rid of their brains, so it's a really gory show, but it's a great, I mean, it's so, Right? And the horrific scene is how anyone could go through this experience as watching somebody that they love now become all zombie like in, in appearance. But I want to suggest to you a far better alternative to dealing with your zombie like husband than shooting him in the head, even though at times you might have that feeling. It's the great zombie slayer, Jesus of Nazareth, who's able to bring what was dead back to life again. And I want to share two stories with you this morning about that. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 7. So if you brought your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to be in verse 11. I want to share two stories of King Jesus and his power over death to bring what was dead back to life again in those that we love. This is the story beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, And they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, let's unpack the story for just a moment. So picture Jesus with a large crowd, and he's approaching the city of Nain, which, by the way, there's still a city today of Nain in Israel. This is what it looks like, which, as a side note, a half a mile away from this picture is a McDonald's. So you could order a Big Mac and then walk into the city Nain where Jesus performs this miracle of raising this dead boy back to life. But you kind of see the hill in the background and where the setting of the city. So picture 2,000 years ago, much more you know, 2,000-year setting, but that's kind of close to what it would look like in terms of the city of Nain. So Jesus is approaching the city. As he's coming into the city at the town gate, there's a funeral procession that's coming out. It's a funeral. And unlike today, you know, where you go to the funeral home, and it's kind of nice, and you got just six bears, they eventually go to the graveside. Back in the, in the Middle East today, and much like 2,000 years ago, I mean, there was a procession in terms of the funeral. So here's some pictures, you've probably seen news footage or, or pictures of just in the Middle East where, you know, it's a whole community. has got the coffin up in the air, and they're all kind of moving together in the same. And that's probably what it would look like for Jesus as he's walking in. He's watching this funeral procession come out of the town. And then we find in verse 12 we have a very important note. He says that this woman here is the guy who's dead, it is the only son of his mother and she was a widow. Now, why is that a significant note for Luke to tell us this? L- let me tell you about first century Palestinian culture for just a moment. This is the culture that Jesus lived in, and just to be very clear, I'm not for, for this, I'm not suggesting this. This is just what it was. So, in Jesus' day, this is what this is what happens if you are a woman, if you are a woman living in first century Palestine, you are living under a patriarchal system. What that means is the men rule everything. Guys, do I get an amen? No, do not give me an amen. That's a, <laughs> that was a trick question. That was a trick question. Women were considered the property and possession of men. That's why a woman couldn't really enter into a contract on her own volition. She had to either go through her father or through her husband. Like even marriage itself. A woman didn't go, I like Bob over Jim, so I'm marrying Bob. She didn't have any choice in the matter. What happens is her father would arrange contractually with her future husband, which as having a daughter, I'm totally for this. Like I'm down with this idea. But that's how it worked back then where the father and the future husband would contractually work this out. And a woman's identity and value is totally dependent on her husband. He is necessary for her protection and her sustenance and her care. She's totally dependent on her, her, on her husband. Even in terms of value, she would see herself primarily as an identity as, I am a wife and I am a homemaker. And thus, her identity might be, my name is Mary, but I am the wife of Joseph. Right? You see how she, she's always connected to her husband. That means then to become a widow is very tragic. And in first century Palestine, it wasn't like your husband's pension check kicks in for you. It isn't like you get a once a month uh, Social Security check to kind of help you out in your new state. And for this situation, you were immediately destitute and in trouble unless you had what? Sons. If you had sons, then your link to the future was assured. And this is why it's so important to have sons back in the first century. And it wasn't like you didn't want to have daughters. You'd have, "Oh, it's a nice daughter, right?" But she's eventually going to be the property and possession of another man and another family. But if you have sons, they'll be entrusted with the care of this mother, providing for her protection and identity and value should she lose her husband. And that's why I don't know if you remember when Jesus is on the cross. I mean, he only says a few words, but if you remember, one of them is to his mother and to his best friend John. Remember what he says: "Mother, behold your son." And to John, his best friend. It's John, right? Behold, what's Jesus doing? So even though he's got little brothers who I don't think he trusted very much, he was trying to ensure that his mother was going to be taken care of after he's gone. He he just knew this could be a very tragic situation. Obviously, it seemed that Joseph had already died when he was younger, and now he was about to die, and so he wants to make sure that his mom is going to be taken care of. That your husband, if you're living in first-century Palestine, is your link either to the present or at least your past, and your sons are your link to your future. For this woman in Nain, what that means is she's just lost everything. And that's why this story is so tragic, because sometimes we miss it in our modern times, but she is a widow, and now she has no sons. I'm telling you, if you whisper that in the first century, it will be met with a horrific gasp. <gasps> oh, that's terrible. And what happens in verse 13, we find Jesus sees this woman, and it tells us, listen, his heart went out to her his heart went out to her. I think this is amazing. I think this is amazing about Jesus. I mean, he's a busy man. Remember, he's got crowds all around him. People are following him, his disciples around him. He is a busy man. He's got a lot of kingdom tasks to take up, and he's got everything around him, and he's the center of attention wherever he goes. And yet, the center of his attention is on this woman who is hurting and is in pain. Isn't that amazing? He's the center of attention wherever he goes, but the center of his attention is on this poor woman who is a widow who's just lost her only son. And for those of you who feel like you're in the midst of losing everything because of the state of either your spouse or maybe your child or maybe a brother or sister, I want you to know that you are at the center of Jesus' attention that he's not too busy to, to, to see or to care or to not have his heart go out to you. And what we see here is just the, the heart of God manifest in Jesus, that when he sees this woman, he knows and his heart is moved. So Jesus goes up in the story here to the woman. It's a widow, mind you, who just lost her only son, and he says this, right? This is like, think a time of grief, the best things to say, what not to say. And Jesus says this, don't cry. Okay, of all the most ridiculous things to say to somebody who's in this situation, Jesus just said it. Don't cry. Really? To a woman who is a widow who just lost her only son, don't cry? Are you kidding me? If I'm the brother in this situation next to this woman, like we're at the funeral procession, and some bozo walks up to my sister and says, in the midst of this, don't cry, I'm telling you, I'm going to want to knock his lights out. I mean, imagine if your sister had lost her husband and then lost her only child and some guest at the visitation walks up and when he sees your sister, oh, don't cry. I mean, you're just like good grief. And to make matters worse, Jesus walks up to the coffin. In and of itself, this is a bold move and he touches it and it stops the entire procession. Again, if I'm the brother, I'm thinking, dude, I don't know what you're doing here. And Jesus says this, young man, I say to you, get up. Again, I don't know the timeline here. Like, when Jesus says this, how much time elapses? is it five seconds is it but i 'm to its the most awkward nervous tension filled moments ever of oh my goodness what 's going to happen I mean, And so all of a sudden it says the dead man sits up and he begins to talk <laughs> he 's a talker <laughs> What do you say after you get raised from the dead like what's up for, uh, this, my mind that 's what happens i 'm immediately curious as to what he says what 's the first thing you say that comes out of your mouth when Jesus raises you from the dead it's like what the <laughs> i mean what what, what <laughs> Hey, it's a party. Why am I in a coffin? I mean, what's a no one here knows CPR because it would have been very helpful yesterday. I mean, what I don't know. And then it says, Jesus gave him back to his mother. And what's interesting about this story is the focus on the entire story. I mean, it's on Jesus. He's the primary character. But really, beyond Jesus, the focus of the story is on the woman. It, it isn't even on the dead son. He's like a secondary character. We don't know the boy's name. We don't know the circumstances of his death, which is strange because usually that's the first thing you want to know. So-and-so died. Oh, what happened? We don't even know. That Luke doesn't. That's not the point. It's not about the dead boy. It's about his mother. And so what happens in the story? The focus of the story is on the mother. We know her status in life, and we know that Jesus' heart goes out to who? To her, not to the dead boy. And when he raises the boy back to life, who does he give, her to give him to? To her, The mother. And see, this is amazing about Jesus' heart, as it moves towards, listen, when we have people in our life that we love, that are in trouble, that seem like they're zombie-like, that are in those dead places, that moves the heart of Jesus. He sees that, and it moves his heart. And then what you see next in verse 16 and 17 is, is when the word got out about this situation, I mean, everyone was, I'm mean, there praising God, and God is help, here to help his people. And just as a side note, this is what we want for the Living Stones Church. These are the stories that we want, yeah, I I mean, my, my, my husband used to be this and used to be like this, and when he met Jesus, he became this, and that story goes everywhere. Or we could say it about ourselves, yeah, before I encountered Jesus, this I mean, I was into this, and my life looked like this, and I was doing these sorts of things. And when I met Jesus, all of a sudden, this is my new life and what it looked like. And so when people hear those stories, we want them to praise God for it. We want them to go, that's incredible. And we want the news of Jesus. We want Jesus to be lifted up and glorified in that, that news about his fame and his power spread everywhere around 46613, 46614, among 42,500 people who live on the south side of South Bend. And so just, just see the power of Jesus to say, it is time to get up. Now, turn the chapter over. Chapter 8, I want to share one more story with you. Luke chapter 8, another story of Jesus bringing back to life somebody who's dead. It begins in verse 40 here, and and there's actually two stories here. It's like Luke begins to tell a story, and then he interrupts it with another story, and then he comes back to his real story. So let's read what he says here, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Okay? Now picture this scene, great crowds, everyone's around. And what happens is, uh, as these crowds around him, a synagogue ruler, so this is an important man, right? He's he's an important man, and listen to what he does. He falls to the feet of Jesus. The synagogue ruler falls to the feet of Jesus because he's got a 12-year-old daughter who is sick and who's dying. And so what happens is he's going to beg Jesus to come back because uh, he's uh, to come back to heal his daughter. It says this verse, in verse forty-two because his only daughter, a girl about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. This is the second story coming in here for twelve years, and no one could heal her. So she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Verse forty-five: Who touched me? Jesus said. Then they all denied, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, look, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Right? I mean, there's so many people, like it's crushing Jesus, and he wants to know who touched you. It could be, it could be anybody. There's people all over the place. But Jesus says in verse 46, No, someone touched me. I know that power's gone out from me. Which, what does that feel like? No, I felt something. Somebody touched me. Verse 47, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Notice where, where does she fall again? Jesus' feet. You know, she's scared. You know why she's scared? Because she's been bleeding for 12 years. And when you've been bleeding for 12 years, you are unclean. And if you are unclean, you're not allowed to touch anybody, especially the rabbi. And here she's just thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, and she did, and she's hoping to go unnoticed, but Jesus felt something, so he found somebody's got to fess up, and she finally does, so she comes to Jesus trembling, and she explains what's going on. In the presence of all the people, she told, told why she had touched him and, and how she had been instantly healed, and then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Okay, going back to the first story here. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, could you imagine this moment? I mean, just the complete devastation. I mean, just overwhelmed in grief. I just, you just lost your twelve-year-old little girl. And immediately the brain goes to work, doesn't it? If I'd only left three hours earlier. If, I, if I'd only done. If I'd only done. I mean, this this is the natural. And so he's just full of sadness and grief, and probably in some way just blaming himself. And hearing this verse fifty, Jesus said to Jairus, "Don't be afraid." Just believe, and she'll be healed. So when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's fa- father and mother. And meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her, which is what they did. I mean, it was, just a, it was very loud, lots of wailing, lots of mourning. And Jesus, in his great sensitivity, says this, Stop wailing. <laughs> so obviously we can learn today that Jesus doesn't like crying. That's what we can say from our Here's good. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. Okay, now I know it was 2,000 years ago, but they weren't so primitive that they didn't know dead. Like, they knew dead. They knew when you were dead, dead, and this girl was dead. And Jesus comes along, and one, tells them to stop crying, and two, says, she's not really dead, she's just asleep. To which, what would you respond with? Well, if you didn't want to punch him, you do the next best thing you laugh at him. So that's what they do in verse 53. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But then he took her by the hand and said, Talitha cum which in the Aramaic is, my child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, which I also love about Jesus, because he does. Once you're dead, you're going to wake up, you're going to be hungry, you should get something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, I don't remember, with Lazarus, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, everyone wanted to kill him. <laughs> so Jesus said, let's, not, let's keep this on the down low for a little bit and not tell anybody yet. But it's interesting to me, as we walk through this text, how many times, I mean, and we saw this even last week. Remember, remember last week we talked about Martha and Mary's response to Jesus about, about Lazarus? What does Mary do when she sees Jesus? She falls to his feet, if you had only been here. Right? Jairus, when, when he comes to encounter Jesus, what does he do? He falls to his feet. Please come back and heal my daughter. The woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years who was healed, what does she do? She falls to the feet of Jesus. I mean, there's just something about falling to the feet of Jesus and asking him to come back and heal my whatever, to fix whoever it is to those dead places in our life that need to be brought back to life again. And so what you see over and over again in this refrain is falling at the feet of Jesus and asking him to bring power back to those that we love. That sometimes the most important stories of resurrection aren't even your personal story, but the one that happened for a person in your life that you love. And I want to say to every parent here who I know, for years now, you've been praying faithfully that your daughter or your son would turn back and know God again. And by all the evidence, you can't tell that these prayers are going anywhere. It's not even going beyond your ceiling, that there's no evidence that's happening. Don't give up. I Just remain steadfast and faithful to fall to the feet of Jesus and ask him to bring your child from death to life. And I want to tell every spouse who's looking at their wife or their husband and feel that they've lost them to whatever, depression, to traumatic experience, whatever it is, to to fall to the feet of Jesus and ask him to raise your spouse from the dead. And I want to tell every child who's sad because their parent is addicted to drugs or is just absent in their life, that Jesus is able to raise your mom back from the dead state that she's in. That right now, if you have someone in your life that you feel you've lost and need to come back to fall at the feet of Jesus and ask, and ask for Jesus to call out to your loved one and say, it is time to get up, to not lose heart and to to not lose hope and no matter how dark it seems to stand in faith. And sometimes it's about stoking that faith that's in you to hang on to the promises of God that we know the Bible tells us that in Jesus, all of God's promises are a yes. And then we want to speak life back into the dead and to speak it out loud. And listen, I mean this, like it might be just for us to prophesy over our children a new word, a living word, something that God has in store for them that they don't even see, to just say it out loud that if you have to, to say, listen, drugs will not have my son. Jesus will have my son and to prophesy that drugs will not have him in bondage, but Jesus will free him from his addiction and just rebuke drugs in the name of Jesus and call on the spirit of the living God to take residency in your son that he might have new life. And if it's depression that's choking your wife to death, then just rebuke it in the name of Jesus and prophesy something better. In the place of sadness and grief and despair, there's going to be hope and joy and laughter. And we prophesy a new word. And I know, even if it looks dark, and right now it looks like it's nothing but death, like bones everywhere scattered that we can prophesy a new word that says, oh no, these bones could come back to life again. And this is even in our word. We know that we have power in the tongue to be able to speak life and to prophesy. And so you've got a story in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel chapter 37, where God knows it looks dead. I mean, when he looks at Israel, it looks like nothing but dead, dry bones. And what does he say to Ezekiel? Prophesy over those bones a new word from God. And so this is what it says in Ezekiel 37 verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. This might be where you're at. I'm looking around and it's nothing but death here. And it's not just seem like there's bones here. These are very dry bones, which means this feels so beyond hope and, and it feels impossible. And so verse three, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, the oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise. It was like a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. The toe bone connected to the shin bone. Okay. And I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. But then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone, we're cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. Listen to this, listen to this. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. This just might be where we're at. This looks like there's nothing but death, and God says, well, then speak a new word. Speak a word of life. Prophesy over those dead places. It might be that we just prophesy over those that we love to say, oh, no, not anymore. You're coming out of this grave, and you're going to live. And even if you can't see it now, a- and given the story that you're living in, I, that's understandable, but there's power in your words, and use them for God's glory. We know Proverbs eighteen twenty one tells us the tongue has the power of life and death, so let's use it for life. So, faithful mother, listen, we're not going to sit around crying and wishing things were different. We're going to stand up and speak over your daughters something better. And, faithful father, that, that's enough with wringing your hands and sitting in frustration and being at your wits end, not knowing what to do. We're going to stand up in the name of Jesus. We're going to prophesy something better over our sons. We belong to Jesus. And death itself quakes at the name of Jesus. So, in the face of death, we speak life. We speak Jesus. No more zombies here. We found the cure in Jesus, who is the King from Nazareth. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to, to, to touch uh, those in our life that we love who just need to get up because they have been down and dead for various reasons. And so uh, we'll just have some time just in the middle of this prayer where just lift up those names. Just even quietly, it's all right. Just kind of. Lift up those names to God and just to, who it is that's on your heart, a brother, a sister, a spouse, whoever it might be, that you know, uh, they're, they're, uh, we don't even recognize them anymore and they need to bring back to life again. So let's just pray. Father, we come to you and are grateful that you are a God of life. That you are God, you could speak life into existence out of nothing, which is the power of your word. And so there's nothing going on in our lives that's too complicated for you. That's beyond your ability. There's nothing that's going on that, that somehow, that your power is not able to make anew. And so we come to you and and we call on you, the God of life, to bring life to those that we love, that that we feel the effects of people that we love when we see that they're not okay and that they're hurting and they're suffering and that in some way it feels like they're dead inside. And so, Father, we lift up these names to you and just pray, would you speak life back into them and, and call them to get up and to live once again. Jesus we're grateful that you have you have conquered death and the death has no hold on you it has no authority that your name is greater than any name including death and so Lord Jesus we're asking for life for those that we love and it's in your name we